Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. This week, spending a billion dollars on the homeless just to find out that you have to spend another billion dollars on the homeless. Vaccine resistors get no reprieve from the governor. A showdown in Congress over the attack on the U.S. Capitol. And a local school cancels Halloween. But first, this week we saw the first debate between Bruce Harrell and Lorena Gonzalez for Seattle mayor. Not a lot of difference between them except on the issue of homelessness and how to handle it. Joining me now is Paul Query. He publishes the Washington Observer, which follows Washington politics, also spent 20 years as a reporter with the Associated Press. And first off, what did we learn from this debate that we saw on Thursday night? I think we learned that that the Harrell campaign in particular is going to try and hang Seattle's homelessness problem around Lorena Gonzalez's neck. We've certainly seen that in the independent advertising that's being done to support Harold. The Harold people think that they've got a really potent issue in her positions on homelessness and on sweeping encampments and on defunding the police. I mean, I think we really saw them come out, you know, really kind of square off on that issue. I think we're going to see more of it coming forward. If there's anything that can be said about the two candidates and the differences between them, I think it is this. Bruce Harrell wants to clear out homeless encampments. Lorena Gonzalez does not. Is that an oversimplification or is that fair? Well, I think it's an oversimplification, but I, I also think that Harrell is very much running on that issue. The majority of the city council is sort of at we shouldn't move the homeless until we have a place to put them, until we have housing and, and shelter for them. You know, Harrell has a plan to create a bunch of, of housing Gonzalez also has a plan for that. Whether either one of those plans is practical is probably a question for another day. We know from the polling that we've seen, there's broad public support for the idea of clearing out a lot of those encampments. And Harold's really kind of banking on that, on those folks coming to him. Well, Harold seems to have very clearly adopted the Compassion Seattle platform after that failed to make the ballot. Yes. I mean, that was a pretty well-tested message. And we know from looking at the campaign finance reports that both Harold and the independent community or committee supporting him have polled extensively. And so I think that they feel like they've got a potent issue there. One of the other things that we saw in the debate last night is Gonzalez going after Harrell for taking donations from a Donald Trump donor uh, and then Harrell responding. This is what the two candidates had to say. And it is beyond refute that my opponent is benefiting from Trump's top state donor. That same donor who I've never met, never talked to this person. I don't know this person also supported Governor Jay Inslee and many Democrats. Audio problems from the debate aside, is that attack from Lorena trying to paint Bruce Harrell as sort of the Republican, the Donald Trump sort of guy going to stick? I think that's an interesting question. This is not a subject that I've seen polling about, um, but there's absolutely no question that there is a lot of rich guy money behind Harrell. That donor that she's talking about is George Petrie. Uh, He and his partner, John Goodman, not the John Goodman that everybody remembers from television, um, (laughs) have put in close to $200,000 between their two households into that committee. Um, They are enormously wealthy and successful real estate developers. And most of the other money in in that committee comes from people like that. So the whole question of whether, you know, Harold is the candidate of the rich 
You know, I think that the Gonzalez people think that they have a potent issue in that. Well, it certainly seems to work in Seattle campaigns. We saw in 2019 when Amazon dumped a bunch of money at the last minute into the city council races. That really worked against them. Are we risking the same thing here? Is 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 that going to be an issue? I think that Gonzalez certainly feels that she's got a potent issue there. And you're absolutely right about the city council races. At least two of those races probably turned on that issue. Gonzalez's largest supporter, independent supporter of the hospitality worker union Unite Here was also in on those city council races in a big way. And their chosen guy, Andrew Lewis, wound up on the city council. Did we see any other daylight between these two other than donors and how they would handle homeless encampments? The issue sort of surrounding the police uh, is a potent issue. And again, this is something that I know that the Herald people think they've got a really potent issue on. Gonzalez is, you know, kind of supports defunding the police and, and moving money into other areas. And Harold is taking a much more, you know, sort of traditional approach to being on the side of, of the police and sort of bolstering up the department. And the department's had pretty significant departures um, in recent years, which is kind of a long term problem. But there's pretty strong evidence that that's a popular idea. People want a strong and responsive police force. So I think that that's the clearest, you know, th- those two things are the clearest issues. Have we seen any recent polling on these two candidates? I think the most recent poll that I that I saw was conducted by uh, Strategy 360 um, in September, and it had 40% for Harrell and I think 33% for Gonzalez with... 27% undecided. Um, you know, those are pretty bleak numbers for Gonzalez because that means you basically need all the undecided people, which, you know, you're typically not going to get. But, you know, that was very early days. And I think that it's a robust campaign. Do you think anyone's minds were changed by the debate? Uh, you know, that's always an interesting question. You know, the kind of folks who watch debates tend to have their minds made up already. The people who are on the fence are kind of more likely to be swayed by the avalanche of TV advertising and mailers and online advertising that we're likely to see in the next few weeks. So whoever has the financial advantage going into the home stretch is probably going to win. And I think that that's Harold's certainly in that spot right now. His campaign has raised more money than Gonzalez's has. The independent committees are relatively equal in the amount of money that they've raised. But the committee behind Gonzalez spent a lot of money getting out of the primary. And so they didn't have as much left. So you're going to see more Harrell than you will Gonzalez, unless there's another infusion from Gonzalez's supporters. All right, Paul Query, longtime Associated Press reporter, now the publisher of The Washington Observer. Thank you so much for your time and insights. Glad to be with you, Jeff. When we come back, a billion dollars is spent on the regional homeless authority with nothing to show for it. When the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. As almost always, we talk with Matt Markovich. And as almost always, we're talking about homelessness and the homeless crisis out there. And, and the biggest thing that's going on right now is the city council is, the Seattle city council, I should say, is debating the budget for this coming year in which we will have a new mayor, possibly well, at least one new member on the city council, a new city attorney, all of which have integral roles to play in the homeless crisis and yet the budget's being set by their predecessors and a lot of that money is going to this regional homeless authority that as yet has done nothing that's right it's still in the formation stages um but it's going to get a lot of money next year and this is what has been anticipated for quite a while 
That's why it was started by, uh, spearheaded by King, uh, King County Executive Dow Constantine and Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin when they came up with the idea of it. They didn't have mm-hmm. a name for it yet, you know, a couple years ago. But it's supposed to take over pretty much all of the homelessness response contracts in 2022. Uh, and we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars just from the city of Seattle, which is allocated from the mayor's budget, she's proposed, is $105 million, just giving it to this regional homeless authority. And the city itself is going to be spending over $130 million in additional money on how the city will respond to homelessness. And that's just in fiscal year 2022. That's right. And haven't they already been spending hundreds of millions of dollars on this homeless authority over the last several years? No, they they spent, uh, to get it ramped up, they spent about... Um, I, I I can't quote me on the numbers, but it's it's several millions of dollars to get it all ramped up mm-hmm. this year. But the actual handing over the contracts, so the city, you know, hires uh, Reach, which is the mm-hmm. main outreach provider, works with the Hope Team, and they pay the city pays them to go out and do outreach in the camps. Right now, the city's running that contract with city funds. But that contract is now going to go over to the Regional Homeless Authority and a lot of other contracts that handle the, the tiny house villages and, and things like that, that the city has been, been the administrator of, mm-hmm. now hands it over to this whole new bureaucracy. And they're going to be the administrator of these contracts and everything else and decide what's important. Maybe tiny house villages aren't as important as the brand new executive director of the Regional Homelessness Authority, Mark Dones, has said, which counters to what somebody like Bruce Harrell says, we should go all in on tiny house villages. So how much authority is this going to have? I mean, obviously, King County and the city of Seattle are spending, as you say, hundreds of millions of dollars on this. How much authority are they handing over? Will the city of Seattle, say, still be able to, to use a recent example, clear out City Hall Park? Although it wasn't the city that did that, it was the county, and there was the big fight over that. How, how would a situation like that unfold under this new regional homeless authority? Who would do it? Well, it would be, if we we're going to use that as an example, and it's a perfect example, too. You know, mm-hmm. it's a very good example. You have a huge camp, a problematic camp, in a city park right next to a county building. Yeah. You know, so there's a lot of implications there. The city or the county had to have to decide, okay, this is a high priority to remove this park. They can then go to the regional homeless authority and say, you know, we have six, we've counted 70 people here that we need housed. Well, then they take over and say, you know what? Okay, we handle all the housing. So we're going to do outreach. We're going to send our people in under our contracts. We're going to provide the house. The housing part is going to be part of what we do. And we're going to help you out in that situation. The regional homeless authority does won't sit there and say, that camp has to be removed. That's not their job. Their, 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 their job is to remove people off the street and get them into some sort of housing. That's number one. But they're not the ones to say, okay, that camp there in that park, that's a high priority for us. We're going to start working with the city or the county on that. Now, it's the city and the county that decide, yeah, this is a problem for us. They go to the Regional Homeless mm-hmm. Authority and they help them out, and, faci- and they facilitate all the back-end part, and they get them into behavioral health, if, if people have behavioral health issues or substance abuse. It's the Regional Homeless Authority that starts coordinating well that with the county at that effort, because that's what the county does. So it's a, it is a, it's a spider web. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a big spider web of stuff. What you're adding is a, a spider whole, web of red, red tape, yeah. as it were. Well, I mean, and, and, to this, and, and I've been saying it from day one. You basically have had 
the homelessness emergency in Seattle going on its sixth year now since mm-hmm. Ed Murray's declared it. And you've had arguably there's more tents and everything mm-hmm. else you see out there. So it hasn't worked. Why do you think a new bureaucracy would make it better? Because it's a regional approach. So it, it comes down, it boils everything down to this, if I had to oversimplify it, is that Seattle allowed this to happen, to happen in the city of Seattle. People from not just Seattle, but within the region came to Seattle, became homeless, and kind of wanted the services of Seattle. Seattle says, I can't do it by ourselves. This is a regional problem. So they convinced everybody to have this regional approach to a problem that Seattle couldn't handle itself. And, and maybe and people are coming from. So now they're trying to offload some of the issues that Seattle has brought on itself, some would argue, into the regional area by this regional homeless mm-hmm. authority and having all the other cities pitch in. But dollars talk. Very few, if any, and they pitch in through the, a sales tax increase, have decided to give this, ex, this regional homeless authority money. Mm-hmm. It's just King County, led by Dow Constantine, the executive, who came up with this idea, along with Jenny Durkin, the mayor of Seattle, who's paying the other half of mm. the Regional Homeless Authority. So it's still the two big entities doing it. The regional approach and all the other cities don't want to buy into helping out Seattle. And so that's how it all came about. Hundreds of millions of dollars for political insulation. And I say that because those who are on the board of this regional authority are not elected to that board. They are elected to other positions and then by virtue of that position, say, mayor of Seattle or King County executive are on this other board. So it's hard for their constituents to hold them accountable for the homeless problem. It'll be easy for the city council or the mayor to say, hey, don't look at me in this next election. It's not my fault. It's mm-hmm. this It's this regional homeless authority that's not getting it done. Yeah, so is that a ha- fair assessment? Well, you have what you have. It's, that's correct. You have a governing board of 12 people. Nine of them are elected, it's like you're saying, from their area, the mayor of uh, Redmond, the mayor of Seattle, the King County executive. So they're all elected officials within their jurisdiction are part of this governing board of the Regional Homeless Authority. And then you have three people with lived experience, basically people who are are homeless. They're not elected at all, but they're Mm -hmm. chosen by the lived experience coalition. So you have this 12-person board, and they will decide the big policy decisions, you know, and budget Mm -hmm. for the Regional Homeless Authority. All of them, ideally, have a stake in the matter because they're all supposedly putting money into the pot. Mm -hmm. But not all of them are. The Sound Mm -hmm. Cities, there's three people that represent all the cities outside of Seattle. Uh, They're really not putting any money into the pot, not like Seattle and King County. So will these politicians, when it comes down to it, really give up, especially Seattle and King County, Give up power of all this money that they're going to hand over to the regional homeless authority, and they decide they they decide. Well, we like tiny house villages, or they don't like tiny house villages, and it goes against the policies of that individual city, like Seattle, giving money. That's what I'm waiting to see. I mean, maybe I'm too, I'm nerding out on all this kind of <laughs> stuff because I've been following it so yeah. closely. But I think the audience should kind of look for that. That. Yeah. Politicians do not give up money lightly. They no. want to control every single penny that's spent. And to hand over that much money over to something that's uh, this brand new bureaucracy yeah. 
Uh, I'm really curious on how that's going to shake out. Well, conversely, as I, you know, as I've been saying, it, it's I would look at it as they're paying that hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars, it is millions of dollars, mm-hmm. to save their jobs. Because the people on this board, as I said, are not elected to it. They're not accountable to their constituents. They, yeah. you, I mean, the those on the board would say, oh, yes, they are. They're accountable when they're elected as mayor. Well, they're not accountable for their actions on the board based on their constituents. You got to think of, and it, it's a, there's a whole, there's several layers of bureaucracy. You have the governing board, which I just talked about. Think of that as the, the a, a corporation's board of directors. Mm-hmm. So they have the say-so and who's the CEO, the big, gigantic decisions about a company, and then you have the organizational board, it, it, what they have at the regional homeless, it's called the implementation board. So you have a whole other bunch of people who so are boards not, and commissions and yeah, executive and directors. Elected, and they're, they're, just get it done. Yeah, they, and so the CEO comes up with, um, the executive director comes up, actually it's the CEO of the RHA, comes up with, here's what we need to do. They don't have to necessarily run it by the governing board, the big one on the top. There's an implementation board that has to say, okay, and then it pop, trickles down to the dude on the ground who actually has to go out into the camp. So uh, that's what's been built for the RHA. Yeah. Nothing down below that actually goes out in the camp other than these contracts. That superstructure of bureaucracy has been built. And like you're saying, people can find political cover in all these these two different boards and saying, well, we, 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 we trusted them. We gave them $105 million, and I don't know why it's bad. I, I, we suggested do this, but, hey, it's not our call. Well, it, you it's, know? It, it's the become homelessness and, and dealing with it has become the third rail of politics, and nothing has worked thus far, as you said. Six years of an emergency, things have gotten worse, not better. So these elected officials are saying, I don't want to touch this issue because no matter which side I come down on, it's going to be criticized and I'm going to risk my election. So now we're handing that, we're spending this money to hand it over to a board of unelected officials, a CEO that has is not accountable to the people making the decisions. And get this, since the, this RHA does not operate on a tax basis, you know, like a, you have a hotel tax, you tax people, you know how much money is going to come in. Yeah. The RHA is totally dependent on donations in a way from the cities and especially Seattle and King County. Every year, that money coming in the RHA can totally change. It's up to the city council. Oh, we don't have that much money this year. Oh, we're not going to be 105. We're going to be 80. Or we're going to give it 140, but we're going to put a proviso on it. You know, it's, it's hard every, to plan with that. It's right. Every single year, their budget is going to change because it's at the whim and call of every single city, especially Seattle and King County, the government, to decide how much money to give to the RHA. And as an executive director, how would you like a job like that where yeah. you can't count on it with a tax base where you know the inc- you know sales tax, you know how much money's coming in every year. It's projected. RHA doesn't have that luxury. It doesn't know how much money it's going to get every year. So how long do you think this lasts? <laughs> Where's my magic eight yeah, ball, Yeah, right? exactly. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, the hope is that it, Everyone's hoping that it is successful. It does change everything. It changes the paradigm on how the region responds to homelessness, and people actually get housing in a, in an affordable way. I think what's going to come back 
and we're going to hear it often and often again, is they're going to come back, Mark Doan's director, or members of these boards are going to say, RHA is not successful because we didn't give it enough money. And to be to give enough money, we need to spend $1 billion. And that's the figure that the city is using in a study, $1 billion to make create affordable housing. 47,000 units costing $1 billion is what some people say is needed to get us out of this homelessness crisis. Short of spending $1 billion, the politicals have cover. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's the will of the people won't spend a billion dollars. Well, yeah. then it's going to fail. Yeah. And by the time that we come to that, we'll probably have spent more than a billion dollars over the several years on all the We're close bureaucracy right setting, we, setting up this authority. C- City of Seattle is getting close. After, uh, you know, if you start with $70 million on that first year, it's been incrementally going up last year was 222 $220 million dollars the city of seattle spent on homelessness let alone king county yeah yes that's right and king county just to let you know king county when you hear about behavioral services and substance that's all in king county the city of seattle has no money for that 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 that's money that comes from the state down to king county so the king county as a government pays spends a lot more than the city of seattle except the problem is very acute in Seattle, and it's very visible in Seattle, mm-hmm. and everyone thinks it's Seattle's problem, and then you can go into the whole argument of how it happened. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's just the fact that we're spending all this money, and then they're going to, as you say, you project they're going to say, we need to spend a billion dollars on affordable housing to build 47,000 units, but we'll have spent that much and more already just getting to the point of realizing we're going to have to spend that much. Yeah, yeah, and unless unless something changes, unless... Unless uh, there is a draconian measure, maybe I'm not going. Just going to throw it out there that we're not going to allow camps anymore. You know, that's it's going to take some strong-willed politician to to make a dramatic change to change the status quo here. I don't see that coming in the next election at all. Uh, in fact, I see depending on how certain people are elected, if certain people are elected that the camps and parks, which is a big concern for the city of Seattle, are going to remain. They're prepping for that. They've added more money in the budget to handle. They're hiring crews now. They're, they're budgeting for crews next year that they've never had in the parks department before to basically manage unsanctioned camps. That's never happened in the city of Seattle. Which is an implicit approval of the camps. Yeah, they're implying that, okay, they're there. They're going to remain. Call call it call a spade a spade. Let's just call it, say say reality. They're going to remain, and we're going to start budgeting for people to handle these camps that should not be there. Well, we'll see how this all plays out. Matt Markovich, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. When we come back, anti-vaxxers are running out of time and places to go. When the Como Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. New vaccine mandates are in place for Washington State. Governor Inslee made the announcement this past week, and this includes large events, both indoors and outdoors. Plus, he said he's not given any more of a grace period with all the details on these stories and uh, what the governor is doing trying to combat COVID-19. Joined now by Como's Ryan Harris, who covered this press conference that happened on Thursday. And what exactly did the governor say? Well, Jeff, first of all, he said, you know, if you want to go to these large events, more than a thousand people indoors, more than 10,000 people outdoors, we're just to that point now where, as he put it, the status quo is not adequate 
for preventing another COVID wave like we've seen from this, you know, Delta variant wave. So anybody who goes to one of these events, ages 12 or older, will have to either show proof of a vaccine or proof that they've had a negative test. And it, I'm pretty sure has to be one of the PCR lab tests within 72 hours of the event, because those lab tests are more reliable than the at home tests. And, you know, anybody could Mm -hmm. run one of those things. Uh, But, you know, the idea here is he's doing all he can to get more people vaccinated. And he's hoping that this will motivate people who want to go to these big events, who want to go to a Seahawks game, who want to go to a Kraken game, who want to go to, you know, the Apple Cup football game. Uh, And he's hoping that'll motivate them so that they don't have to hassle with taking a test every time they want to go to one of these things. So that's sort of what's behind it. Now, he was asked at one point with some of these big venues doing this already. Why do we need to have a rule from the governor? He said, well, not everybody is doing it, number one. And number two, we just need to push more people to get vaccinated. And so he wanted a uniform rule, and that's what he has put into place. What have we seen as far as resistance to, you had mentioned, some of these places like King County has a vaccine mandate. Aside from that, we saw Climate Pledge Arena, the Seattle Kraken creating a mandate. Same thing with the Seattle Seahawks, the Mariners, should they have gone to the postseason, would have done it. But, you know, they didn't go to the postseason. Where has he seen this resistance? You know, I think the resistance has come primarily in situations where it's, vaccine required without the testing option this one even though it can be a hassle to try to get an appointment or wait in line or find a location especially since testing has been reduced from the early days of the pandemic where we were all lined up trying to get tests you know having that option in place i think sort of reduces the resistance so although you're still going to hear people who say you know, my body, my choice, I don't want to get the vaccine. But the governor also talked about a case where two daughters of a respiratory therapist were trying to convince their mom to get the COVID shot. Now, this is a respiratory therapist. So somebody who has seen people dealing with COVID, works in the healthcare field, has at least a vague idea of how these things work. But according to the governor, this woman had fallen for some of the things that she'd heard on the Internet, some of the misinformation about these vaccines and chose not to get it, got sick with COVID and was dead within 12 days. And the governor says, look, you know, at some point we have to draw a line because now we have this vaccine, which with billions of doses given of the three different ones and some of the other ones that aren't in use here in the U.S., but in use in other countries, They've generally proven themselves to be safe. They've generally proven themselves to be effective. And even if they're not, they're not hurting anybody. So why not take the chance to take it as sort of the governor's logic? You know, you might save your own life. You might save the life of somebody you love. And so he's really just trying to do anything he can to get people to take their shots. So how effective is the governor expecting this to be? Because with all the criticism for vaccine mandates that he had for state employees, and we'll get to that here in just a few minutes, the mandate did push a lot of people that were vaccine hesitant to actually get the shot. Yes, and I don't know if we want to say so much that it's an effective push more than it is chipping away at the issue. Because at this point, 
we've gone from, it's kind of like restoring a, a, a major power outage. You go from the general to the specific. You get large areas that get their power back on, and then you, the power companies have to go and hit those tiny areas where the power is still out. And it's sort of the same idea here. We got a large group of people who were, I mean, I, you know, I, the running joke I have is I was pushing little old ladies out of the side, you know, out of my way to get my vaccine, which really isn't true. Uh, But (laughs) I I was anxious to get it. And I was among those people, you know, who were in that large group ready to go as were my parents and my daughter and a lot of people I know. And now it's to that point where we we're taking whatever new steps we can take to just knock away those last few people that we really need to get. Unfortunately, that group of, you know, last few people for the governor is larger than he had hoped. So he's still got a lot of work to do along with his department of health and and everybody else. And he's not alone in the country, but we're certainly on the way there. And these kinds of measures, I think we'll see more of, as he tries to keep doing that chipping away. Speaking of those state employees, he also made an announcement with regards to the mandates there. Yeah, he brought up a couple of things. He said as of October 4th, which was the last update, they're not expecting another one for several days uh, until they get the final count in. But at that point, they were at nearly 92% of state employees vaccinated. So the governor was pretty proud about that. Because he says not only, you know, did we go from 48 percent, you know, a couple of months ago to this 92 percent, but it means that critical state services will keep operating and there won't be this mass exodus of state employees. In fact, he even pointed out that because of turnover, the state's usually dealing with about 10 percent of uh, the positions it has, the workers it has sort of in flux. And so, you know, they can deal with more than 90% of state employees good to go. The other point he made that he was very firm about is for those who have chosen not to be fully vaccinated by his deadline, which is October 18th, they're not getting any extra time. He's not moving the goal line. He's not going to budge. He said they've had, I believe the figure is 10 weeks to get their shots in. They've had plenty of time. And they're not getting any extra time. He says, you know, uh, they might lose their jobs, but somebody else will come in and fill them. And that's just what they'll have to do. All right. Come on, Ryan Harris. Thank you so much for your time. Hey, no problem, Jeff. Still to come, a showdown over congressional subpoenas. Will anyone be held accountable for the attack on the U.S. Capitol when the Como Politicast continues? After this, welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. A congressional committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol could soon prepare criminal contempt charges against former White House aide Steve Bannon as he defies a subpoena for documents and testimony. The committee scheduled a deposition with Bannon, but his lawyer has said that at Trump's direction, he will not appear. Now, members of the committee have threatened to pursue criminal contempt charges against subpoenaed witnesses who refuse to comply. Now, House vote would send those charges to the Justice Department, would, and they would then decide whether or not to prosecute. So this whole process could take a long time. Joining us now is ABC's Alex Prichet from Washington, D.C., and it's been nine months since the mob of Trump supporters ransacked the U.S. Capitol. Some of those involved have pleaded guilty. 
but still no significant consequences for those who organized, supported, and carried out the attack. Well, and Jeff, not just that. I mean, there haven't been significant consequences for uh, some of the political leaders that uh, some have accused of sparking that riot, right? Uh, and, And there's been a battle going back and forth over what information about that day and and, 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 and calls and, and conversations leading up to that day will be handed over to to, to Congress. Uh, you know, the White House has a battle going on with the former president about those activities related to January 6th. President Joe Biden formally rejected uh, Trump's claim that documents should be shielded from release uh, to a House Select Committee investigating this insurrection. Uh, which is something that the Trump team is going to continue to fight. Uh, but then on the other side of this, you have uh, these these subpoenas, these congressional subpoenas. Until Thursday, we had uh, former White House aide Steve Bannon defy his his subpoena. It was something we kind of expected, but still, it kind of it, it it's going to make for this a momentous moment, right? For 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 this congressional panel that said that they wanted to get to the bottom of of, of the events that led up and uh, and 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 instigated that 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 riot, right? So they'll have this vote to, to recommend charges and that would send the recommendations to a full house vote. And then it kind of puts the ball in, in the court of the Justice Department and whether or not the Justice Department will uh, will prosecute. Now, we've seen this before, the House issuing these subpoenas to members of the Trump administration, Trump supporters ignoring them, no serious punishment. Yes, but, you know, we've never... Well, so a couple of things to keep in mind here. Um, in the past, uh, with these subpoenas, you know, Congress doesn't have a jail. Uh, Jonathan Carl pointed out that they used to, but they don't have a jail. And, and they don't have... Um, they don't have a, uh, a, a judiciary arm, right? A, a, a law enforcement arm, uh, to, to carry out these subpoenas. So, you know, the best they can do is refer it to the Justice Department. But, but also, you know, historically, people don't like to be held in contempt. And so usually you see them kind of go along with it to avoid these charges. I mean, I think what we're coming up on right now is, 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 is kind of a, kind of a first with, uh, you know, the ball really kind of being in the justice department's court as to whether or not it will prosecute. And so we'll see that, uh, you know, this upcoming week uh, with, with, with Bannon. And I, I mean, I think, that you know, you have to kind of separate Bannon from from some of the other folks that that have been uh, subpoenaed. You'd have Cash Patel, who also did not show up for a deposition, but he has been in contact with the committee. But Bannon has has claimed that uh, you know his lawyer has claimed that you know, Trump's lawyers have told him that he should not appear, and he's been kind of mum. And so this it's 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 a departure from from the other folks that have that have been called in. Now, a subpoena is a legal requirement, compelling testimony and production of documents. These subpoenas quite common in, in the world of law, but if politics are involved, they seem to carry very little weight. Again, Jeff, this is this is kind of fresh ground, right? I mean, we, we, we haven't dealt with this before, um, but in terms of being common, yeah, and even in this case, they're pretty common, right? Um, you know, they're at least 19 subpoenas issued so far. Thousands of pages of documents uh, have been coming in. But uh, again, Bannon's defiance uh, signifies a crucial moment for this committee, whose members have vowed to restore a binding force of congressional subpoena power um, after, you know, they were routinely flouted while, while Trump was in office. Now, should Bannon and others testify, what's the committee expecting to hear? Because generally, 
they don't make these moves unless they know the outcome. Yeah, I mean, that's something uh, that's... Quite frankly, I don't know. We know that Stems do believe that, you know, the, the, the writing is on the wall. And if you get more intel as to, you know, the conversations that were happening that day, it would give some insight into into the president, the former president's state of mind. You know, if there's anything in particular about Bannon's testimony uh, or deposition that they believe would come out, you know, that that we don't know right now. But, um, you know, certainly, you know, the conversations that he would have had with 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 Bannon, uh, the the conversations we've already heard some headlines earlier this week about um, those conversations with Kevin McCarthy, uh, kind of giving some insight into the former president's role and also his mindset uh, is something that Democrats would, would would look to get at. All right. We'll just have to wait and see how this all turns out. Alex Prochet from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jeff. Still to come. A lot of pushback now for the Seattle Elementary School that has canceled this year's Halloween parade. I'm Carlene Johnson. When the Como Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back. I'm Jeff Pogela. Finally on the Como Politicast, Seattle's BF Day Elementary School's decision to cancel its Halloween parade is making national news. School administrators say the event marginalizes students of color who don't celebrate the event. Como's Carlene Johnson has more. It's unclear if there were any actual complaints from students or parents about the annual pumpkin parade, but the district, in an emailed statement, said some students had requested to be isolated on campus while the event took place. It cited the district's unwavering commitment to students of color. So instead of the costume parade, they say they're going to have more inclusive and educational opportunities. Seattle Times reports for at least five years, the school's race and equity team has been talking about eliminating the parade. Parade. So when it came up this year, they moved to cancel it. Comments on Facebook blast the decision. One reads, sad children have to endure this stupidity. Another wrote, poor kids these days, surrounded by miserable adults. The story's been picked up all over, including by the New York Post and the Daily Mail. Carlene Johnson, Como News. And that'll do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Como News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and much more. All are available at comonews.com slash podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.